Okay. So last week we quit, I think, about here. We were about ready to talk about Jonathan Mayhew, right? Because just before that was Captain Parker, okay? And we went to Jonathan Mayhew, okay? So we're, we're dealing with not all the pastors, but some of the key pastors that were involved in, in before and during the revolution. So this guy was born in Martha's Vineyard, which today is a real uppity place. I don't know how it was in, when he was born in, in, in the you know, early 1700s. He attended Harvard, graduated in 44. Then he was a minister of the West Church in Boston in 1747. And this is supposedly a, an etching of what that church looked like at about that period of time. I mean, they built pretty nice churches in Boston, okay? Uh, he was adamantly opposed to the Stamp Act. He was famous in part for his 1750 and 1774 election sermons exposing American rights, the cause of liberty and the right and duty to resist tyranny. I think I did talk about this last time, okay? Other famous sermons included what's called the Snare Broken, which was um, given in 1766, and it was about the repeal of the 1765 Stamp Act. His sermons and his writings were said to, develop, to influence the development of liberty and the cause for the revolution. So here is, here is this, this uh, repeal of the Stamp Act. The Snare Broken was the title of it. This is a sermon that you can get online. Very few sermons got printed, but this was one of them. And it's only 16 pages long. Imagine if you gave that to Mike, okay? Uh, we, you know, in 30 minutes, we'd just be taking a break, okay? So this is one of the, one of the sentences out of the middle of it. Thus our soul is escaped as a bird from a snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we are escaped. Lo, not without much struggling in the snare before it gave way and set us at liberty again. I mean, this is out of the middle of a sermon. Okay? talking about the conditions that were going on in the colonies at that very period of time. So another key pastor was the Reverend Dr. Samuel Cooper, who lived from 1725 to 1783. Another graduate of Harvard, graduated in 43. He was a congregational minister in Boston at the Battle Street Church, and this is a supposed a uh, photograph or etching of, of, from that, that, of that church, okay? He preached the commencement sermon on the new U.S. Constitution, okay? So when that was passed, he was one that gave that commencement sermon. He, members of his congregation included Hancock, Sam Adams, Joseph Worm, and John Adams. I mean, think about that group in your congregation, okay? and the kind of impact they're gonna have on the folks who are there. Then there's the Reverend James Caldwell, uh, born in 1734, died in 1781. He was graduated from the College of New Jersey about 1755, I couldn't find an exact date, but somewhere in that period of time. He was pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Elizabethtown, New Jersey, which is now called Union Township, okay? And it's going to be the center of, of a battle here in a second. In 1755, he became chaplain of the 3rd New Jersey Brigade and traveled with the troops. Now, this is 55. This is before a lot of the stuff happened, but, but there were some militias 
that were formed and actually were, were busy in that period of time. Okay? He was killed in 1781 by a sentry, a guy by the name of, of James Morgan, who was hung because of that. Sorry, it's just children. And they're unhappy, and I, I, sometimes I would cry if that would help. <laughs> so th th this is a key player here, okay? So here's the deal. At, at the Battle of Connecticut Farms. Now, Connecticut Farms is in New Jersey, just a little ways from, from Long Island, okay? So this is the middle of a big map. There's Connecticut Farms, okay? It took place on the 7th of June, 1780. It's in what presently is called Union, New Jersey. Mostly around what the, the, the stuff I read said it's around Chestnut Street and Stuvervenst Avenue, okay? It took me a long time to find those streets in, in today's maps, but I, I actually found them, okay? And they say this battle happened where the British forces turned from where Colonial Avenue is today. Now, Colonial Avenue runs all the way across the, the, this community, okay? It's a, it's a major thoroughfare, and it probably wasn't called Colonial Avenue at that time, okay? Makes it hard to find. So, so here's the deal. He lived there. His house was in, the, in this area, okay? The, the, the troops were turned, and the, and the Hessians were marching with the Brits. And so as they retreated from the battle, his wife, Hannah, was in the window of his house. And this is the house. I don't know whether it was upstairs or downstairs, but it was in the window of the house. And she was shot and killed by a British soldier. Okay? okay. Yeah, usually the bedrooms were upstairs. It's true. Okay? So when James heard about it, okay, he was saddened and angry, and from the pulpit from then on, and on horseback, he spread the word of her death. Okay? So her sacrifice increased the determination of the patriots to hang into the battle. Now it gets a little, little more carried away here. So th this happened down, down here a ways. Okay? I'm going to go back. So here we are at... Connecticut Farms is right in this area. Now we're going to look at a battle here at Springfield. Okay. So there we are at Springfield. Now notice right up here, this is this is the winter camp of George Washington. Okay. So on June 23 of 1780, the Reverend Caldwell helped the Patriot troops defeat the British at the Battle of Springfield, right here. Okay near the border between Union and what is now Springfield, and prevented the enemy from making their way to Morristown, which is where Washington and the troops were at. Okay? So it was a significant battle. And one of the... Uh, so here we are spread out. Here's Long Island, here, you know, the, down through here. Okay? So here's Connecticut Farms, Springfield, there's Morristown. The distance is only 20, 30 miles. I mean, we're not, not talking about huge distances here, okay? So in, in one of the battles, I don't know whether it was that one, but one of the battles, they ran out of wadding, okay? It's hard to, hard to load a musket if you don't have wadding. And so the story is, th this is supposedly, supposedly him here, this is Caldwell. He went into the nearest church, grabbed the himmel, which was a Watts himmel, and tore the pages out, and, and the story is, he said to him, let's give them Watts, boys. 
okay? So we're going to give them some sermon why we're shooting them here, okay? Now, I don't know if it's a true story or not, but it's a good story, okay? So it is said that after that, he preached from a huge Bible on the pulpit with a pistol laying on each side and, and dared anybody to come either take the Bible or one of his pistols. Okay. So he was a fiery preacher. This is the first Presbyterian church in Elizabethtown today. Anyway, it wasn't this morning, but current, current time. Okay. So that brings us to John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg. He was born in 1746, lived 1807, graduated from University of Hale in Germany. Okay, so German-speaking American. While he was there, he was apprenticed to a, to a merchant by the name of Lubach. And after three years, he decided he didn't want to do that, and he enlisted in the Royal Army Regiment of Foot, which is foot soldiers in the British Army. Okay, now there were, rather than artillery, these are folks with rifles that marched. Okay. So he returned back to Philadelphia in 1767 and attended the Academy of Philadelphia, now the University of Pennsylvania. He was ordained in 1768 as a Lutheran minister to a congregation in Bedminster, New Jersey. Later on, went to Woodstock, Virginia. So here, here is Washington, D.C. Here is Woodstock, way out here okay, in, in Maryland. In Virginia, excuse me. Okay. So in his Woodstock, he pastored two churches, one English-speaking at an Episcopal church and at a German-speaking Lutheran church. Okay. Now, I haven't looked about what the differences are between the theology of those two denominations, but evidently they weren't all that far off, or he probably wouldn't have been in both places. Okay. So in 1775, he was a colonel in the 8th Virginia Regiment. He was in the Committee of Safety in the House of Burgess. Okay? He was at Valley Forge the winter of 77 with, with some of my relatives. He became the vice president of Pennsylvania, became a US senator, was a US House of Representatives, and finished his military career as a major general. This is his statue in the US Capitol right here. Okay? Right. So a pastor fairly renowned, okay? So this is a story here. Let's... According to a biography written by Peter's great nephew in the mid-1800s, on January 21, 1776, at the Lutheran Church in Woodstock, Peter read from Ecclesiastes 3. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. When he came to verse 8, a time of war, and a time of peace, he looked up and declared, in the language of the Holy Writ, there is a time for all things. There is a time to preach and a time to fight. And now is the time to fight. Sweeping off the clerical robe he was wearing, he revealed his colonel's uniform beneath. With drums beating outside the church door, men kissed their wives goodbye and walked down the aisle to enroll in the army. Within a half hour, 162 men had joined, and by the following day, 300 men from the county formed the nucleus of the 8th Virginia Regiment. There are no reports of this incident prior to this biography, and historians tend to doubt it, but it sure makes a wonderful story. Right. I mean, I can't imagine they got, you know, 
drums outside and you know all this deal. But nonetheless, uh, th this is a, a painting of him taking off his robe, okay, and it's it's in the Capitol, okay, and there's a statue of him doing the same thing, okay. So it's uh, it's a story that's been around for a while. So more, more about him. In January 1766, he returned to his church churches from having, having attended and worked at the state legislature uh, in Williamsburg to find that armed conflict in Virginia and the British had confiscated all of their munitions. Now here's more story, okay? Patrick Henry, who was the commander-in-chief of the Virginia militia, who, which consisted of two regiments, okay? Now a regiment Two regiments is about 1,500 men. But the literature that you read later on says he took 5,000 militia. I don't know where he got them, okay? And, they, and he was directed by Patrick Henry to go get the munitions back or get full restitution for them. Now, I have not been able to find whether it actually happened or if he went, did he get the munitions back, okay? But, but this stuff makes for good stories about the revolution, okay? I mean, we know Patrick Henry was the commander, okay, and we know that Muhlenberg was involved, okay, and we know that the conflict took place at, at, the, at, the, at the community. Now, he had a brother, Frederick, okay, so he, he, was, went to, he, he was going to school in Litnia, I think it is, uh, and I can't, I'm not even going to try the Germany, German, but in Germany, okay. And then he graduated from the University of Halle in Germany in 1769 with a degree in theology. He was ordained in 1770, okay? So he came back to the U.S. to, to Skonchberg and Lebanon, Pennsylvania, where he preached between 1770 and 1774. And then he moved to New York, where he was at for two years. And one of the stories is that the Brits burned his house, okay? And that's what caused him to get involved in the war. There, there's no evidence that they burned his house, okay? But something happened to him and his family when he was in New York, okay? Because he, he moved from there, went to New Hanover, New Jersey, until 1779 when he went into politics. Oh, I just get too fast with my thumb, okay? He became a member of the Continental Congress, where he served for, for essentially two years, was the Pennsylvania House of Representatives for three years, was Speaker of the House in 1780, delegate to Pennsylvania for the State Constitutional Convention in 87, was the first signer of the Bill of Rights along with Sam Adams, or John Adams, excuse me. He was in the U.S. House of Representatives in 1789 to 1797. He was the first Speaker of the House, and this is his his portrait that's in the speaker's lobby in Washington, D.C., okay? So another pastor became politician, was very successful as a politician, probably was a good pastor. Then we've got George Whitfield. Now, I, I love this painting of George because he said he was slender, cross-eyed, and handsome. Now, I don't know if he was that cross-eyed, but, but the Painter has him done cross-eyed. Graduated from the University of, of Oxford in 1732 as an Anglian. 
He was a powerful orator and charismatic. He created a sensation in England by preaching outdoors. He preached outdoors because they wouldn't give him a church. Okay? I don't know what he did. I mean, they, they ordained him, but typically when they ordain you, they put you in a church. Okay? They didn't give him a church, so he just set up a tent, probably one of the early tent meetings in, in England. Okay? Yep. Yeah. So probably didn't get a lot of praise from the Anglian bishops and on up. Okay. So in 1738, he answered a call by John Wesley to come to Virginia as a missionary. Now, I've read conflicting stories about what happened there, but that didn't work out real well. There was a lot of difficulty dealing with, with slaves and how they were dealt with and what Wesley did or didn't do. Uh, so I opted not to try to get it in here because I, I get con too much conflict about what really happened, okay? He, I'm sorry? Uh, no, about John Wesley and, and, the, and Georgia and what happened there, okay? Right. But he got out of there. I mean, he left there and said, you know, for some reason, the two of them butted heads over some issue. And as near as I can tell, it had to do with slavery. <laughs> All right, so here's how he's best known. He's best known for his role in the Great Awakening. Okay? It is said that he preached 18,000 sermons to over 10 million people. Okay? He said, I have a warrant from God to preach. His seal holding up his Bible is in my hand, and I stand in the king's highway. Stuff that was written in newspapers about then said he was a marvel of the age. So Benjamin Franklin, upon hearing him speak, said his integrity, disinterestedness, and infatigable zeal in promoting every good work I hath never seen equaled and shall never see excelled. Tough words. Okay? I mean, good words, but it took me a while to, I had to go look those up. I mean, that's not in our, not in our vocabulary today. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he was not movable, okay? and he didn't fatigue easy. I mean, just stayed right in there. Now, notice they don't show him cross-eyed in this. this in, in Georgia, where he was at there for a short while, there is a, a plaque that's up where, where, the, where they had this mission that they ran that noted that he made seven trips back and forth between America and England during, during his lifetime. It would have taken about six weeks going each way. So 12 weeks times seven, okay, that's a bunch of time. He, he, he was one of those who went before Parliament about the Stamp Act, okay? So he preached in England. Remember, he didn't have a church. Okay? It was a, a, a tenant speaker. I mean, he, preacher. He went to England, he preached, and he would come back over here as he was called. He, he did a lot of stuff, as near as I can tell, going back and forth trying to deal with Parliament over various issues that were, come, came up before the Revolution. And Parliament, remember, has that act basically saying everything 
So th these are things that are noted about him relative to, to politics. He was a chief advocate of American independence. He urged Americans to separate from England. These are three of his quotes. They are trying to force an established church on you. They want to take away liberties, both civil and religious. Unless you separate, you will not be able to preserve your liberties. Now, liberty is our foundation, right? So th this is a, essentially a call to arms. He went to Parliament, as I mentioned earlier, to deal with the Stamp Act. He had a significant influence on people's preparation for the war, both by the colonies, the militia, and individuals. Uh, I suspect if we had recordings of his sermons, we would, would understand that more clearly, okay? About being prepared, make sure that you've got firearms, the, the, the British are going to be here, they're gonna to try to take away your liberties, okay? Unless you get separated from them, okay? You, you will not have the liberty that you have today. So I suspect that that, that was included in a number of sermons, okay? So he died, okay? Oh, he, he was sick, he had asthma, and he wouldn't quit. He said, I'd rather wear out than rust out. He did, died on September the 30th, 1770, at a parsonage in the old Presbyterian church in Newburyport, Maryland. He's buried in the basement under the pulpit, okay? So this is a monument to him that's at the church. This, this is the crypt that he's in, okay? And this is the, a note that's on the pulpit that says, Whitfield is uh, right below you here, okay? Now, it was not unusual to bury significant figures in the, in the aisle and the floor of the church. That was, that was fairly common. I mean, it didn't happen every day, but significant people that they did that, okay? In American Samoa, they put them in a crypt in the front yard, okay? Hard to sell your property when your grandmother is in the front yard, okay? Right? So, so here, here's the rest of the story, okay? He died, remember, September 3, 1770, had an asthma attack, okay? He was widely mourned. So five years later, now th this is another one of those stories, okay? And I just copied it verbatim because I was kind of wild. Five years later, a revolutionary chaplain and several officers opened the crypt in, in Newport, New, Newburyport, Massachusetts. They removed his clerical collar and his wristbands, cut them into strips, and distributed the pieces among the soldiers, thus taking Whitfield with them into battle. That Whitfield's clerical insignia should somehow embroil American troops in their fight against the perceived tyranny is an indication of the high regard in which he was held in America and of his graphical status among, can't talk today either, okay, among the American Revolution. So, I mean, it's significant that anybody would even think about doing that. We're going to take off his collar and cuffs and cut him into strips, and everybody gets to take a piece of that with us. How, I mean, scripturally, it would be hard to support that, okay? Yes. So the other piece is whether it really happened. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and was the story put together by 
uh, the individuals in the army and the revolution, or was it put together by his supporters in, in terms of his, of his role in the Great Awakening? Okay? I mean, it could have been either both. It may have happened. Okay? I mean, there was a lot, a lot of silliness stuff has gone on, especially in war. Okay? Yep. Yeah, and we have lots of, of stuff where we've got uh, books or things that people had with them, that a soldier had with them that have a, 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 a bullet in them or what way through them, okay? Uh, so it, I mean, it, it happens. So here's kind of a summary of the pastors of the period of time. It is clear that many of them were community leader, leaders. They were organizers and trainers of their militias. They were active in the Committee of Correspondence. Not everybody, but quite a few of them, okay? They were, some of them were active in the Sons of Liberty. 24 of the 56 signers had Bible school or seminary degrees. Tell me that's not a, a religious-based group, okay? And they were very act, active in, in this group and, and, and called the, the Black Robe Regiment because of their activity. So years later, come on. If I get too fast, my thumb. So this is John, what John Adams said about them years later, okay? Pastors in particular and Christians in general were so influential in our move to independence, okay? Now this was several years later. Just take it from him. A couple of the founding fathers had this mission in New York. I don't know his name. His last name is Johnson. And they stuck him on the ship to go to the church of England. Wow. But even long after the shooting had started, he was still saying, we can make this right. Right. What I remember about it third of the population was not in favor of separation. About a third were, and there's about a third that said, we just want people to leave us alone. Okay, I'm busy trying to raise a family and make a living. Sounds like today. Okay? And the group that actually took up arms was only about 3% of the population. Thus, today, we have the group called the three percenters. Okay, and it's based on that on that belief that about 3% took up arms. I, I don't, you know, there was, no, there was no census taken until 1790. So we really don't know how many did what, okay, in, in, in those terms. All right, so anyway, we, we've talked about all these people who were involved, and, and now we're coming down to uh, the Declaration of Independence, okay? So I wanna go through a little bit about what happened to the people to the, to the men who were involved and signed this document. And I've given you a few documents. The first one is fallacy, okay? Uh, it is one that if you search on the web to find out 
what became of these men, you'll find this over and over and over. It has a lot of errors in it, okay? And I, I, I distribute it because if you go online and look, you'll find it, okay? And it's often the one of the first things that pops up. I just call it fallacies. <laughs> All right. So here we, here's where we're at. We're, we're at, at quote unquote lesson number seven. Okay. So here's some objectives. The cost of freedom to the signers of the Declaration of Independence. What, what, what was the cost to them? Okay. The evidence of faith in God that we see in the lives of the signers, the framers of the Constitution, and the early presidents. Okay. What do we know about them? Common characteristics exhibited by the early founders. Okay. So the Second Continental Congress met and, and tried to put together something based upon uh, what's called Lee's Resolution. It was, the, actual, the guy's name is Richard Henry Lee of Virginia. In, in June 7, 1776, published this document. Resolve that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all alliances to the British crown, and that all political connections between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. Sounds familiar, right? So the guy who wrote that is this Richard Henry Lee. So on June 11, remember we wrote that on the 7th, on the 11th of June, uh, a committee of five was drafted, was, was called together to draft a, a declaration of grievances. It wasn't a declaration of independence, it was a declaration of grievances. What, what is our problem with, with the King of England? Okay. So it's committee five, John Adams, Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, Robert Livingston and Roger Sherman. Okay, so this is the five. I, we always talk about, you know, Franklin and Jefferson's involved, but but there were five of them there. Okay. Notice that Lee is not one of them. I always thought that was interesting that he wasn't. I mean, he's the one that wrote that deal, but we don't have him. But who knows? I mean, maybe he had stuff he had to do at home. I mean, you know, all these people had had other things they were doing. So the theoretical draft that we see, I mean, there was more than one draft, but the draft we look at today theoretically was drafted and presented uh, by June 28 of 1776. Theoretically, uh, Jefferson was the writer. Uh, some people doubt that because his handwriting was not all that good. Okay. Yeah. So this is the one that we commonly see. Okay? This was put together sometime between June 11 and June 28 of 1776. Okay? It was formally adopted on the 4th and signed by Hancock on the 4th, and then the rest of the 55 signed by August 2 of 1776. A lot of them had gone home, took them a while to come back. Okay? I mean, you can see we got nearly a month here between the July 4th incident and when everybody signed it, okay? And we often see that there were 55, but there were 56 signers, 
Okay. So what were the grievances? Why did they separate from Great Britain? What was the big deal? Well, the most, if you ask people on the street, ask people in our congregation, I think you will find taxation without representation to be the thing that almost everybody comes up with. When in fact, it was grievance number, grievance number 17 out of 27. It, it was way down the list. So here's the other deal. Abuse of representative power in those 27 grievances shows up 11 times. Abuse of military power, seven times. Abuse of judicial power, four times. I thought there was one more. Oh, I think that's it. All right, so you've all got a copy of the Declaration of Independence, right? It's in, in your the little packet. And so I've got a 10-minute video here where they're going to read this, and, and uh, I've found that often people like to follow along. Okay? Your eyesight has to be really good. Is it? Is it in there? Well, let's see. I haven't looked at it since I sent it to... Well, it's not there. I'll have to bring it to you. Somehow it got lost. That's okay. I'll bring you a copy next, next week, okay? When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitled them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government. Laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies 
and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained. And when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable only to tyrants. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses is repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers incapable of annihilation have returned to the people at large for their exercise, the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states, for that purpose, obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. He has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation. For quartering large bodies of armed troops among us. For protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states. For cutting off our trade with all parts of the world. For imposing taxes on us without our consent. For depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury. For transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies. For taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments. For suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time, 
transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny, already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy, scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages, and totally unworthy of the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our immigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity. And we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They too have been deaf to the voice of justice and of consanguinity. We must, therefore, acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them, as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. That they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown. And that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. And that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce. And to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. So think about the clarity in, in that document. I mean, it's not, the document's not that big. I mean, you've got it here in front of you. Okay? I mean, here we are essentially 200 years later, and you don't, we don't have to go look up any of those words. I mean, it's just crystal clear. So, so the other piece of this, and Dr. Bain's the one that pointed this out to me, how many times 
is the Lord referenced in this document? Anybody want to guess? Well, let's see, I'm going to, I'm going to do a couple. Here, I'll go forward and come back. Here we go. Okay. What we have here is we've got the introduction, got the 27 complaints, and then we've got this piece at the bottom. Okay. So let's look at this. Here's once, laws of nature, and nature's God. Creator, two, supreme judge, divine providence. So when, when people say, well, this is, this is not a religious document, well, that's true. It's also not a secular document either. Okay? I mean, it, it's clear to me that, that these men who wrote this had a reliance upon, on God. And the other one is that I, I do not believe that you could get a group of five together in the short period of time that they drafted this and get that clarity. Okay? I mean, there was a lot going on. We looked at all of these incidents over a period from 1750 to 1776, 26 years of incidents here. Okay? And they're able to boil that down to 27 very distinct items. Okay? And, and they, they say of themselves that this is not of their doings, okay? Right? When it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the band to their connection, connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God. So they're not saying our laws, okay? saying God's laws. Okay. Who do they appeal to? They're not, they're not appealing to the king. Appeal to the supreme judge, judge of the world and for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. Okay. Oh. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine that coming out of the 435 that are back there that are arguing over, over whether to do a budget or not? You know? And they haven't done a budget in 20, was it 27 years? There hasn't been a budget produced by the House of Representatives? I'm sorry I didn't dig down and see that because I, I know when I've done this before, people like to kind of follow along. So we may have time later, not today, but later in this class to go back and do that again. Okay? So here, here is a, a drawing that I found of the, of the 56. I'd like to talk for a few minutes about some of them before we, before we leave and we'll pick it up next time. Okay? So the price they paid is the document that you have. This is a commonly reproduced document that is filled with inaccurate statements, okay? So if you want accuracy about these 56, there are two books that I highly recommend. And I think on the first day I gave you a list of all of the support stuff, but uh, both of these have been reproduced. These are old, older books. I think this one, this one here is 1848. Uh, the Wives of the Signer is about the same period of time, and it's 
called, it, it has a different title, something about pioneer women. In it, okay? But both of these are available from wall builders. But The Lives of the Signers is really a, a, a great read. Okay? We don't know very much about most of the wives. I mean, we don't have information in this book about every wife of, of the 56 signers. Because many of them, unless they were prominent in some way, there's just not much written about them. Okay? But, but, but this was written in, 40, in 48. You know, it's not, not that long afterwards. Okay? So the stuff that was in the newspapers and things that they know was pretty, pretty easy to come by. Okay? If I were to take a history textbook from a previous generation, this is a textbook from 1848 that's been reprinted. But this is called The Lives of the Signers of the Declaration of Independence. It is a biography of each of the 56 signers of the Declaration for generations in America's schools. We studied every one of the signers of the Declaration. We used to know every one of the 56. And so today, the ones we know were largely irreligious, and so we say, oh, Founding Fathers would not have wanted religious expression in public affairs. The courts are exactly right to say that we can't have these public religious expressions because that's the way the founders were. Well, you've chosen the two least religious founders. You've made everyone know the two least religious founders. We used to know the other 54 who were very evangelical, quite frankly, in, in so much of what they did, and we don't hear a thing about them anymore. Today's pseudo-historians not willing to let truth or historical facts stand in the way of their personal secularist convictions declared just the opposite, asserting that neither our nation nor its leaders were influenced by Christianity. For example, this article declares, our founding presidents were not Christians. This article similarly announces, the founding fathers were not Christians. Notice the emphasis on the word not. This article proclaims that the signers of the Declaration were enemies of Christ, and the LA Times heralds America's unchristian beginnings with an inset box declaring the Founding Fathers, most, despite the preachings of our pious right, were deists who rejected the divinity of Jesus. In short, according to these and many other writers, our Founding Fathers were a collective group of atheists, agnostics, and deists. They didn't believe in Jesus. They weren't Christians. After all, if you look at the painting of the signers of the Declaration, who are the two founders that all Americans can immediately recognize? Thomas Jefferson, and Benjamin Franklin, of course. But wait, don't stop there. Which one is Samuel Huntington? Or Robert Livingston? Or George Clinton? Or Robert Morris? Or Stephen Hopkins? Or Richard Henry Lee? Or George Reed? Or Roger Sherman? Or Elbridge Gerry? Or the others? Isn't it interesting that we've been trained to recognize the two least religious founding fathers, Franklin and Jefferson? We don't know the others, but we're told that they were just like Franklin and Jefferson. Actually, in defense of Franklin and Jefferson, while they are the two least religious founders, least is a comparative term. They are the least religious of the group, but even they're more religious than most religious individuals today. After all, Benjamin Franklin recommended Christianity in the public schools of Pennsylvania, and he worked to raise church attendance across the state. He also made one of the nation's most forceful defenses of religion when it was attacked by Thomas Paine, the author of the infamous Age of Reason. And it was Franklin, citing numerous Bible verses to prove his point, who called for the establishment of chaplains and daily prayer at the Constitutional Convention. And these are the documented actions of one of the least religious founding fathers. And then there's Thomas Jefferson. 
Not only did Jefferson recommend that the great seal of the United States depict a Bible story and include the word God in the national motto, but as president, Jefferson negotiated treaties with the Indians in which he included direct federal funding to pay for Christian missionaries to evangelize the Indians, and these treaties were ratified by the U.S. Senate. Furthermore, Jefferson closed presidential documents with the appellation, In the Year of Our Lord Christ, thus invoking Jesus Christ into official government documents. Well, you know, I have a lot of fun with Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin because people think they know those two, but you take those two and they are clearly the least religious of the signers of the Declaration. <laughs> and by using their original documents, they look like a couple of radical right, Bible-thumping evangelicals. I mean, and, and they're the least religious. And I'll give you a great example. Uh, we moved into the U.S. Capitol in 1800, in November of 1800. And when we moved in, one of the first acts of Congress was to approve the use of the Capitol as a church building. You'll find that in records of Congress, December the 4th, 1800. Now, who did that? Well, you had the, the head of the Senate and the head of the House. The Speaker of the House was John Trumbull. The president of the Senate who approved that was Thomas Jefferson. Mm -hmm. Thomas Jefferson approves church in the Capitol? Yep. He went there as vice president. He went to the church at the Capitol for eight years as president. And as president of the United States, he's going to church. And this is recorded in all sorts of members of Congress, their records, their diaries, because they went to church at the Capitol, too. Right. And so Thomas Jefferson, President of the United States, thinks, you know, I think I can help the worship services at this, at this new church at the U.S. Capitol. And they met in the hall of the House of Representatives. So Jefferson ordered the Marine Corps band to come play the worship services <laughs> and the church services at the U.S. Capitol. So your worship, worship band <laughs> is the Marine Corps band, a pretty good worship band you had. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson did that. I thought he wanted separation church and state. If you read his letter on separation church and state, he said separation church and state. He makes it very clear. Separation church and state will keep the government from stopping a public religious activity. So we'll close with this. This is Franklin's comment. I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proof I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, it is, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? So next week we'll pick up right here. With Thomas Jefferson, okay? Because it's 20 some minutes past the hour.